This week, the world lost a great thinker, writer, and theologian in James Cone. Dr. Cone primarily worked within the Christian world um, and is really seen as instrumental in black liberation theology. But what he writes speaks to us as humanists as well. These words particularly struck me this morning. Indeed, our survival and liberation depend upon our recognition of the truth when it is spoken and lived by the people. If we cannot recognize the truth, then it cannot liberate us from untruth. To know the truth is to appropriate, appropriate it, for it is not mainly reflection and theory. Truth is divine action entering our lives and creating the human action of liberation. Truth is divine action entering our lives and creating the human action of liberation. Welcome this morning to this hour. However you arrived, busy, centered, joyful, sorrowful, welcome to this place where we seek truth together in our speaking and our listening. Welcome. It is good to be together. I invite now our wonderful guest musicians to share an opening song with us.
Well, I would like to start every morning like that. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I am Amanda Poppy, the clergy leader here. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I am so glad to have you with us this morning. Whether you are in the room or joining us on Facebook, glad to have you here. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag so that we can tell who you are and answer any questions that you might have. We do enjoy talking about why this community is so important to us, and we are especially eager to hear what it is that you are looking for as you walk through our doors this morning. We hope that you'll join us after the platform service for coffee and cookies in the lobby and the social hall through the doors behind you. And we hope that you'll consider sharing your email with us on the gold sheet, um, which can be found in your program this morning. You can um, unsubscribe at any time, but that will put you on our email list for about two emails a week. And um, you can drop those in the collection basket as it passes later in our platform service. I'd like to remind you to silence your electronic devices this morning, anything that beeps, so that you can be fully present while you have them out. You might as well check in on social media and tell all your friends that you're here. Hashtag Washington Ethical Society. And now I'd like to invite Jared Mason to read our statement of purpose this morning. Jared is a relatively new member at West, um, part of the West. He's still got his new member ribbon on. That's so nice, Jared. Uh, a member of the West Band and also part of our anti-racism, anti-oppression, and multicultural team. We are glad to have him with us. The Washington, oops, am I on? Okay. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each other's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. If you are new to our community of children and adults, we warmly invite you to join us as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. As Jared lights our community candle, I invite you to join me in our words. May I invite you to guess what our words might be. There we go. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week, we ring a bell in solidarity with people around the world, particularly those that are experiencing loss or violence. We think this week of those lost in flash floods in Israel and of those experiencing violence and armed conflict anywhere in the world. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. 
invite you to allow that chime to bring you into a time of meditation. Settle in your seat in a way that feels comfortable for you. Perhaps your feet on the floor. Close your eyes if you'd like to, or focus them on the floor in front of you. Breathe in and out. Breathe in again deeply and fully. Let it out. As you continue to breathe, bring awareness to your own self, your own body, the breath and blood. Extend your awareness out, the person next to you, and on the other side. Breathe in and out an awareness of those in front of you and behind you. Their breath, their bodies. Stretch your awareness to include our children and our teachers. Those walking down the street, up into Maryland and down into DC, open your mind to the awareness of all the breaths, all the bodies that surround you. In the silence that follows, breathe in and out, holding that awareness.
Some of you know that I have been on vacation for the last week, and this morning, one of you who has been following my uh, <laughs> exploits on Facebook said, well, I knew you would be here this morning because I knew you wouldn't want to miss Anthony Penn, and that is quite true. We are so honored and delighted to have Dr. Penn with us this morning. Anthony Penn received his BA from Columbia University and his Master's of Divinity and PhD in the study of religion from Harvard University. He is currently the Agnes Cullen Arnold Professor of Humanities and a Professor of Religion at Rice University. And he is the founding director of the Center for Engaged Research and Collaborative Learning, which is also at Rice. Dr. Penn is the author of, um, or author or editor of over 35 books, which seems like a lot, uh, including The Black Church in Post-Civil Rights Era, um, Terror and Triumph, The Nat Nature of Black Religion, Introducing African American Religion, The End of God Talk and African American Humanist Theology, which you can find in our bookstore. Um, and recently, uh, his book, When Colorblindness is Not the Answer, Humanism and Race, which several of us, a number of us, have been reading together and then discussing in small groups. It is such a delight to have you. Uh, you know what, I also forgot to say, he's a member of the American Academy of Religions Board of Directors, just all the fancy things. He's a lot of fancy things. Um, we are really just delighted to have you here with us, Dr. Pan, and I'm not gonna take up any more of your time with your accolades, but rather let you speak. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for the kind invitation. Um, I, I start with a confession. My Saturday, yesterday, did not go as planned. I got up early, but that's just the nature of flying out of Houston, so really wasn't a problem, and the flight was uneventful, and I always appreciate uneventful flights. Uh, when we landed, I turned my phone back on off of uh, airplane mode. You know airplane mode, yeah? And was bombarded with text messages and then went to Facebook and Twitter um, announcements concerning the death of James Cone. And I was supposed to see him um, May 1st. 
And he was just a deeply influential figure. If you're unfamiliar with him, you should put something by him on your summer reading list. Perhaps My Soul Looks Back, his first memoir. But a deeply influential figure, kind and considerate. And for me, something of an intellectual and ethical bridge. I turned 54 this coming uh, May 2nd, and my life divides fairly evenly between two phases. The first phase involved being deeply entrenched in a Christian, somewhat conservative environment. Now, I was a member of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. It's the oldest black denomination in the country and on issues of race, somewhat progressive, on everything else, somewhat backwards. And I was involved in ministry early. Uh, as a preteen, I was involved in ministry. D- during one Sunday school class, the pastor asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? We're all sitting in the circle, and there were the usual responses. I'm going to be president. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be an attorney. I- I'm going to be a firefighter. And he got to me, and I said, I'm going to be a preacher. I'm not quite certain why I said that. It could be because within the context of my community, Moral and ethical insight, social standing revolved around the minister, that this was a black male who had a certain type of standing within a society that was death-dealing and vicious with respect to issues of race. And I said, I'm going to be a minister. And his response was, okay, we start next week. (laughs) And we started the following week. Now, I didn't preach, but I did a lot of other things, including opening the doors of the church. This is a major moment within black church circles. It's the opportunity for for folks to move from disregard and the threat of hellfire to church membership and safety. And I was that bridge figure. I couldn't go to the store alone, wasn't old enough to vote, But I had some say with respect to how people understood themselves in an ultimate sense. My grandmother made it clear that doing this required education. She told me she would not make use of an an attorney that did not have a JD, nor would she secure the services of a doctor without an MD, and her grandson was not going to be an ill-trained minister. Education was big in my family. My grandparents were college-educated, and this says something coming from small-town North Carolina. They were college-educated. It was understood. You get as much book learning as you can. My sisters were in school, and my attitude was, if my sisters are doing it, I'm going to do it. My sisters don't get anything I don't get. My oldest sister was working on a PhD. I wasn't quite certain what that meant, but she was getting one, so hey, I needed one as well. So education was not an issue. We had a series of ministers as I was growing up. In the last, when I was a senior in high school, I was attending a rather conservative high school. It was a feeder program for Bob Jones University. I'll let that sink in. (laughs) So you know my orientation. He was assigned to a church in Brooklyn, New York, a rather substantial church in Bedford-Stuyvesant. Not Bedford-Stuyvesant 2018, not gentrified Bedford-Stuyvesant, but Bedford-Stuyvesant of the early 80s that was being ravished by crack cocaine and disregard from the city. That was my Bedford-Stuyvesant. And I understood it as divine providence. My minister was going to Brooklyn. 
I'd accept the invitation, I'd go to Columbia, and I was going to save New York for the Lord. Every single borough, maybe not Staten Island, but every other borough <laughs> I was going to save for the Lord. I got to New York, and it just blew my mind. I encountered people who held a variety of religious perspectives that did not make much sense to me. I'd never heard of some of these traditions, and, and this is what floored me. They were as dedicated to those traditions as I understood myself to be dedicated to mine, and they did not fear hellfire. It just kind of blew me away, and they were often nicer to me than the folks within my church circles. This was difficult for me. I was encountering, encountering academics in the classroom who understood the Bible as a piece of literature, perhaps very good fiction, but literature. And this just blew me away. This was not what I understood about this text. I'm having a hard time processing this, and I'm making my way from Manhattan to Brooklyn, and I'm working with young people who are finding it easier to think about their demise, to think about eulogies, than to think about a bright and productive future. And what I had to offer them was not very much. Not much at all. But across the street from Columbia University is Union Theological Seminary, and that's where James Cone taught. And during my sophomore year, I was introduced to some of his work, and it was just mind-blowing. Now, the idea was to use your highlighter to just highlight the more significant passages. But in these books, my early collection of his writing, almost every line on every page was highlighted. It it was making sense to me that James Cone was talking about a sense of being, a sense of purpose that was always and already connected to the well-being of those who suffer most. It gave me a different way to think about ministry. I was still interested in ministry. It gave me a different way to think about ministry. It gave me a more robust theological vocabulary. It gave me a different way of thinking about God. And this was exciting to me. But it also prompted more questions than answers. And the church folks at Bridge Street AME Church, they didn't want a youth pastor who had really good questions. They wanted somebody who had <laughs> dynamite answers. This was tough. They were living within the context of racial disregard, economic chaos, and good questions, was not going, good questions wouldn't get the bills paid and wouldn't keep their children safe. They wanted more than this, but I didn't have any more. I was finding it get difficult to continue to be involved in this church, so there were some Sundays I just I could not do it. I was supposed to be present for the 6 a.m. service, and that wasn't really the issue. I could get up and get there. That really wasn't the issue. I could do that. Right? Was, I, I prided myself on being tired, like a whole lot of college students. It was the number of all-nighters you could pull. Right? Fatigue was a badge of courage. So it wasn't that I was tired, it was just I couldn't get there and face these people who needed from me more than I could provide them. So some Sundays I'd get to the train station on 116th Street and wait for the train to come and I'd let it pass and I'd sit down and just chill for a minute, let another one pass and sit and chill a little longer, watch the rats playing on the platform and on the tracks and, 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 and just wait. I'd time it perfectly. I'd finally get on the one train and make my way to my connection to get on that famous A train. But I wouldn't get on immediately. I'd let a train pass. 
I'd sit and chill and let another pass, look at my watch, and maybe let a third pass. And I wouldn't get on until I was fairly certain that I could get off at my stop, walk to church late enough to not have to be in the pulpit. I just, I couldn't do it. I could not do it. And I could easily say to my pastor, Doc, I'm sorry, you know, the trains. And no one was going to argue about the trains in New York. Of course, that's easy enough. And it gave me an opportunity to breathe. And I understood that that was insufficient, that I had to get out of New York. I was still committed to ministry, but my sense of ministry had radically changed, radically changed. One of my heroes was Adam Clayton Powell Jr. at this point. And it was because he saw the church as an opportunity. He wasn't concerned with the number of folks who joined the church. He was concerned with the number of businesses in Harlem that hired black people. And this made a lot of sense to me. It helped me kind of tie my questions, my anxieties, my concerns, my passions to my religious outlook. It gave me a way of responding to Cone. But I had to get out of New York. And so I decided to go to a place where ministry didn't matter much. It was about ideas. Ministry didn't matter much, so I'd have an opportunity to breathe. Sure, at Harvard, you'd have to do field education, but you'd do that anywhere. I was still undercover with these questions, so I decided to work at a church, and I encountered these problems again. My young people were dying, literally dying. And I didn't have anything useful to say. The pastor told me, let the people get happy with you, but I wasn't happy I was confused, I was baffled, and it reached a point where it was clear to me, I would either have to be a custodian of a tradition that I was questioning, or I'd have to leave and concern myself with people. And there were lots of things I was willing to be, but I was not going to be a hypocrite. So I contacted the pastor, I contacted my bishop and surrendered ordination and left. It was William R. Jones and Sharon Welsh, two UUs, who gave me a way of renaming myself. I knew what I wasn't at that point. I was not a Christian, I was not a theist, but I wasn't certain what I was. It was in conversation with them that I realized I was a humanist. I continued in the academy because there was something about religion that had influenced and informed, affected human culture for so very long. I had to understand this thing. I had to be able to wrap my mind around it because religion had mattered so long and for so many. I had to understand it, but I wanted to be in the classroom where I could have good questions and not have to worry about answers. I could equip students with tools that will allow them to explore and investigate their world and demand from their world based upon their ability to craft circumstances and create worlds with their words. But Cone remained important to me because he didn't, like so many others, didn't reject me because I no longer believed. His attitude was okay. So what does this mean for the people? All right, you're not in the church anymore. So what does this mean for the people? From his perspective, people were dying. And he would tell me this over coffee, over breakfast. People are dying. And what does your new orientation do for people? And so it became quite clear to me that this humanism I now embraced meant nothing if it didn't provide me with a posture towards the world and a way to recognize and address those who suffer most. If it didn't have something to say about injustice, it wasn't worthy of the name. 
But I had a way, needed a way of thinking about this because I lost something in this transition from theism to humanism, and that was the certainty of outcomes. As a theist, I had the certainty of outcomes because it wasn't restricted to what people did. It was a matter of something bigger and better than us safeguarding the future. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. There was something in theism that allowed for recognition of human shortcomings, but a certainty that human shortcomings wouldn't ultimately harm our ability to achieve what we desired. But as a humanist, I didn't have that. All I had was us, and we are at best sloppy. I needed a different way of thinking about this, and so I turned to a figure who remains important to me, and it's sad to say what he wrote in 1903 is still relevant today. That is W.E.B. Du Bois and the Souls of Black Folk. In that book, if you've not read it, put it on your summer reading list. You really owe yourself this book. In that book, he outlines two problems. One is the Negro problem, and he frames that problem in terms of a deep disregard, a violent and death-dealing disregard for so-called racial minorities, in this context, African Americans, right? A deep disregard for those, and he's trying to understand why did Reconstruction fail, and, and why does this nasty animosity, this death-dealing animosity towards black people continue? And he frames this in terms of the Negro problem, and that's the problem he wants to address through economic renewal, political transformation, educational opportunity, and shifts in social culture. But in the book, none of those strategies work. None of them work. So again, if you're unfamiliar with James Cone directly, you are familiar with him indirectly because he is the, he is the intellectual linchpin that created the tension between Reverend Jeremiah Wright and President Obama. Jeremiah Wright deeply committed to the teachings of James Cone, Obama more aligned with the social gospel, right? Christianity's significance is felt based upon its ability to make a difference in the world, but without the same sort of anger and passion concerning racial disregard. For Obama, we all hurt. We all hurt. And Obama addressed the Negro problem, not to the satisfaction of many, but he addressed the Negro problem. How do we rethink the social, political, economic, and educational opportunities within this democratic experience in a way that will safeguard the future? But the strategies have not worked. During those years of radical hope, we have Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland. And out of those years, we move into a different political climate. Donald Trump. Those strategies did not work, in part because of the second issue that Du Bois outlines. And he does this fairly early in the text. And he does it in terms of a question, how does it feel to be a problem? Do you see the difference? The Negro problem is about the material resources 
for collective life within the context of human history. How does it feel to be a problem is about the effective, the emotional, the psychological ramifications of disregard. And he says this is the question that white folks don't ask him, and it's a question he doesn't have a very good answer to. How does it feel to be a problem? This requires us to tackle race and racism in a very different way, to not simply think in terms of resource that failed with the civil rights movement, to think simply in terms of resource, but to think on a much larger scale. What does it mean to be? What does it mean to occupy time and space in a death-dealing culture? Who are we within the context of a death-dealing culture? And that is hard. What Du Bois outlines, not explicitly, but implicitly in this book, is there are no easy answers and there's probably no win. That's rough, isn't it? There are no easy answers, and there's probably no win. So what do we do? In a culture that is outcome-driven, what do we do? Within the context of a culture that assumes that persistent and hard work will win the day, Du Bois says probably not. So what do we do? This is my suggestion, that humanists without the ability to rely on something out there that breaks in and makes things happen are even more obligated to take seriously what Du Bois says. You can do what you want, and it probably won't win the day. So what do we do? This is my suggestion. We provide a different orientation. Rather than outcomes, we recognize that there's something useful. Perhaps there's a liberative moment in our persistent no to injustice. And I don't mean this simply verbally. I mean our posture to the world, our ethics, everything we do constituting a no to injustice. Recognizing that in that saying no, consistently and perpetually, there is something of our humanity. There's something of our relationship to the world. And it's not about outcomes. It's about this persistent saying no to injustice. The philosopher Albert Camus provides a way of thinking about this. In this short essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, he's dealing with this dude, Sisyphus, right, who's being punished by the gods for a variety of crimes from their perspective. And this punishment involves the need to roll this rock up a hill. But he doesn't get to do this just once. The rock comes back down, and he's got to push it back up. It comes down, push it back up. And the gods assume that this persistent punishment will break him. But Camus argues it doesn't. That Sisyphus is lucid. He's aware. He is okay with his circumstances. And in his ability to continue to push, he finds his response to forces. It's not about no longer having to push that rock. It's recognizing that there is something of profound value in our ability to continue to push that rock. And so Camus ends that essay with this line, one must imagine Sisyphus happy. Not that Sisyphus is happy, but one must imagine Sisyphus happy. It's a different set of criteria here. It's not that the rock is on the top and he no longer has to push it. It's not outcome driven. It has to do with process and the ability to use human determination and tenacity and whatever limited gifts we have to say no. 
But I think in saying no, we need to make certain that we have our heads wrapped around the issue properly. So let's take race and racism, for example. Now, I'll give you some don'ts, yeah? And so from my vantage point, and some will disagree with this, but from my vantage point, it's time to stop saying people of color. And this is why. To use that phrase, people of color, allows whiteness to remain normative. Because when white people say this, they don't mean themselves, they mean everybody else. So it allows whiteness to be normative. It allows whiteness to remain the standard. Rather than saying people of color, if there's something about that phrase you just have to keep, then say this, people of a despised color. It decenters whiteness as normative as the standard, yeah? Because then whites are included in this. We have to be aware of the fact that to be white is to also be raced to the extent that whiteness is dependent on blackness. You cannot understand whiteness without blackness. So let's change this in a way that doesn't allow whiteness to remain normative. We can't do good work on ending racism if we understand whiteness as normative. At best, what we end up with are multiple shades of the same. That isn't very useful. Secondly, let's recognize how privilege works, that it's far too easy to assume that when people talk in terms of white privilege, what they mean is economic power. <laughs> no, no, people making use of this strategy who are pointing out white privilege understand that there is a population of white Americans who economically suffer, yeah, that classism is real. But white Privilege at its core has to do with an understanding that one has a right to occupy time and space. That what is available, whether you have it or not, you are entitled to. It's the ability to buy that luxury vehicle without being worried how many times you'll be stopped by the police. It's going to that restaurant, being seated near the restaurant, and not having to assume it's because of how you look. It's going to the store, asking to see an item, being told how much it costs, and not wondering, do they think I can't afford this? It's being in school with the teacher assuming that you had the capacity to earn that A and having to prove otherwise, as opposed to starting with that F and having to prove that you merit better. I understand the full scope of white privilege. Finally, we have to educate ourselves. Ignorance is not an excuse in 2018. To say you just don't know doesn't remove the obligation to find out, study, learn something about the issues. Study, learn something about the issues, and then you can tackle them in a way that is mature, that's reasonable, and informed. And even after you do all of this, recognize that oppression is web-like in nature, and every day we learn new ways in which we participate in nastiness. So we're not talking about outcomes. You cannot judge the success of your activities based upon the final outcome. But ask yourself this question, am I persistently saying no in all of the ways that are available to me? Am I persistently saying no to disregard? in what I do, 
in what I say and how I place myself? Am I constantly and persistently saying no to disregard? It's not the outcome. It's the effort. It's not the final conclusion. It's the perpetual rebellion against what we know does not allow us and the world of which we are a part to thrive. Thank you.
Well, it is a particular joy to get to be in the congregation one serves on a Sunday morning and be so inspired myself. So thank you so much, Dr. Penn and Greater U Street uh, Collective as well. This is the time in our platform service when your voices can be added to those shared this morning. If you've heard something that particularly resonates for you, something you'll take with you into the week to come, I invite you to raise your hand to begin with your name, and I'll bring the microphone around to you. <laughs> 